Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is Carol J. Drucker, S-E-P-E-S-E-C-B. Carol is a principal of the award-winning firm Drucker's Idell Structural Engineers in Naperville, Illinois. Carol received her bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Purdue University and her master's degree in structural engineering from the University of California at Berkeley. She has authored articles on connection design and is an invited presenter for AISC and the Structural Engineers Association of Illinois. Carol currently serves on the AISC Specification TC6 Connection Committee. She has worked extensively on the structural design of many connection projects throughout the country and is recognized as an industry leader. Welcome, Carol. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to agree to, to do the interview with me today. Thank you, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're originally from Kentucky, and you earned your undergrad degree from Purdue before making your way all the way to California to study at Berkeley for your master's degree. Uh, what motivated you to move all the way across the country to study at Berkeley? Well, originally I was torn between going to Berkeley and Cornell. I had an undergraduate professor, Professor Yenner, who strongly encouraged me to go to Cornell. He had done his PhD there, had a great experience, and he thought it would be a perfect match for me. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, Berkeley was ranked number one at the time, and I was very interested in seismic design. It was a very tough decision, but in the end, it came down to the weather. <laughs> because I was a December grad, and there was a snowstorm that hit the East Coast. And my dad absolutely refused to drive east, so I'm like, okay, we're going west. <laughs> and in the, in the end, it turned out to be a great decision, because I do not regret going to Berkeley for one moment. It was a great education there. Yeah. Do you think your whole life would have been different if you'd made the other decision? I think so. I think, uh, I, think I would have stayed in New York. Now that I have seen New York City, mm -hmm. which I absolutely adore, I probably would have stayed in New York. So yes, I do think it would have been completely different if I had gone the other way. Did you experience any culture shock coming from Kentucky and Indiana to California? Well, you would think so. Coming from the south side of Louisville to what my friends called Berserkly, California, <laughs> that there would be cultural shock. I would understand someone thinking that, but actually there was, there was no cultural shock whatsoever. And the reason for that was because my parents, both my parents were from Chicagoland area, mm -hmm. so we traveled to the big city quite often, and we actually traveled around the country quite often. I had been to California before, so thanks to my parents, there really wasn't a, a culture shock coming from Kentucky to California. And the reason that we lived in Kentucky was because my father worked at Fort Knox. He was a civilian at Fort Knox. Oh, okay. My first job was actually at the Corps of Engineers in Fort Knox. Was that when you were in college? Or? No, that was right out of high school. Right out of high school they, they hired me at the Corps of Engineers. I was very grateful for that opportunity. Uh-huh. So what attracted you to the civil engineering field? I was fortunate enough to have a sister that was two years older, so there was a lot of discussion in our house about professions when she was leaving for school. Mm -hmm. My dad told us to get out the encyclopedia and start reading. He was that kind of guy. <laughs> so that's exactly what I did, and I got out the encyclopedia, and I read about civil engineering, and I knew then that that would be a, a great match. I was always fascinated by the bridges crossing the Ohio River, mm -hmm. connecting Louisville to Indiana, and I always wanted to know how those were designed and built. And I also loved math. I, I knew I wanted a profession where I got to use math. I always excelled at math, and, and to this day, I still really enjoy using math skills. I would agree. I, I'm the same way. Yeah. I love math. I love it's always math. logical. It's always the same. Right. Totally agree. You can always count on it. 
Uh, did you have any other aspirations when you were when you were younger? Not really, because I pretty much knew, maybe when I was real, real young, of course I wanted to be a doctor, because most kids want to be doctors, because that's the first profession they actually experience. Uh -huh. and when I was maybe much younger, a doctor was appealing, but as I grew older, I quickly knew that wasn't going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of nice to know from a young age what yeah, you it think was you nice. want to and it was real nice because in high school I took drafting courses that really helped me prepare for college yeah. back in those days. There was no Revit, no CAD, it was all hand drafting. So mm -hmm. it was really nice to be a step ahead of everyone. And then I always concentrated on math and science in high school. So it was nice to know. Yeah. Your first job out of school was with Skidmore, Owings & Merrill. Did you start in their offices in California or in Chicago? Well, I actually worked for both. And the thing about that is I knew a lot of people in the class ahead of me at Berkeley. And it just so happened because our profession is extremely cyclic. One year, everybody gets a job. The next, no one can find a job. And the year before I graduated, it was really hard for the engineers graduating from Berkeley to find a job. There was just no jobs out there, and I knew that. So when it came my time to graduate, I wanted to beat everyone to the punch, my fellow classmates. So during spring break, I sent out 50 resumes. I, mean, I, th I thought I was going to be the first one out the door. Sent 50 resumes, and then SOM was the first one to call me in, went in for an interview. And that day they offered me the job, but I had to start immediately. That wow. was the catch. So for the rest of grad school, I traveled across the bay two hours every single day before classes started and worked at SOM San Francisco. Oh my gosh. Isn't that a lot? Yeah. Yes, I look that's back a on lot it. in grad school. It was a lot. It did actually help because I was doing seismic design of uh, concrete structures. At the same time, I was studying them at Berkeley oh. in advanced concrete design. So it worked out really well. The yeah. class in the, the, this is when classroom and real life really complemented each other extremely well. So it yeah. turned out to be a good opportunity. Yeah, and that's rare. Yeah, it that is they, rare. That you get, you know, both those things at the same time. Yes, I was actually able to bring things that I was learning in the classroom into the practice. It was very beneficial for the project. Yeah. After I graduated, I stayed there for two more years and then I came back home to the Midwest and worked for SOM Chicago. In San Francisco, mostly worked on seismic concrete structures, and in Chicago, steel high-rise construction. <laughs> that was steel. the other big difference between the two. Was in San Francisco, everybody knows what a structural engineer is, and it's a very respected profession. And I, it was kind of a cultural shock coming to Chicago, <laughs> where nobody knew what a structural engineer was. You know, yeah. we were architects. They think they're architects. They were architects. <laughs> I think we're still working on that here in Chicago. It definitely has gotten a little bit better over the years. Did you have a mentor at that first job or in school that you feel really helped guide you? My first mentor was in school, and that was Professor Patero. To this day, he is still my favorite professor. What a dedicated professor. I, I've never seen such passion for teaching ever. Was that at Purdue? That, no, that was at Berkeley. At Berkeley. He, he was an excellent professor. He actually called uh, Saturday morning classes at 7 o'clock Saturday morning, additional class time, because he felt there just wasn't enough <laughs> to teach us during the day, <laughs> during our regular class time. And he was such a good professor, had so much passion that I think kids that weren't even in our classroom started coming. It was standing room only in these huge, huge classroom assemblies on a Saturday morning at 7 o'clock. That's unheard of. It's unheard of. Someone once told me that he said that the reason why he did this because he feared that he would have to live in a building that one of us designed <laughs> one day. And he was afraid that something might happen and we better know our stuff. And knowing him, I, be I believe that is true. And that is true dedication yeah. that a teacher has. I really admire him for that. I also want to say when I uh, worked, I was very fortunate to have very good mentors at the office. I did work for Bill Baker, 
Mike Tilk and Kurt Gusterson at uh, different times at SOM and at Tilk Gusterson and Associates. And all three of those were excellent mentors. From them all, I learned how to look at problems from different angles. I also learned the business side of engineering, um, the practical side, the technical side. They were all very good mentors. And I think today my only regret that I have is that I didn't get to work with Kurt Gusterson longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. He's a great mentor. He was a great guy. Mm -hmm. You're very well known for your expertise in connection design. Um, was that a conscious decision to specialize in connections or did you just fall into it? No, it was not a conscious decision and uh, yes, I fell into it. And how that worked out is something very surprising happened. I became pregnant with twins and I had to stay in bed rest for five months. And after the twins were born, I took two years off to raise the children. But during those two years, a local fabricator, Strauss Boyts and Associates, who I'm still very close with, kept calling and asking me to do connection calculations for them. And I'm like, no, I really can't do that now. I have too much on my hands. Mm -hmm. But after two years, things started coming down at home, and I thought I, I could actually give it a shot. And I actually had another offer from another SC firm to come back, and I was torn which way to go. And in the end, I think I chose wisely. Strauss I did a job with Strauss Boyts. They slowly taught me the trade of connection engineering. And what really set things going was when AISC asked me to convert the LRFD second edition manual from U.S. customary units to metric. To metric. You that's worked right. on the metric manual. I worked on the metric manual. I didn't know that. That's right. I converted every number, every word from U.S. units to metric units. Did that with Cindy. And after that, I really knew connections, very proficient in connections. People would actually call me throughout the country, ask me where things were in the manual, and I could point them directly to the page instantly. I knew it that well after that. That was really the turning point. And after that, uh, business really started to grow. Wow, that's, that's So I actually great. have AISC to thank for this. Wow, the metric manual. Mm -hmm. Speaking of manuals, I, I interviewed Bill Thornton yesterday, and we discussed his paper about connections being the last bastion of rational design. Do you think that that's true, that connections are the last bastion of rational design? I'm not really sure what Bill means by that, but... Well, I asked him, I can tell you. Yeah, I think I have an idea <laughs> from what connection design is all about. I know a lot of the times engineers, when they design a um, um, structure as EOR, you put a lot of it into commercial programs, you put it in, and then you get what comes out. You put it on the contract documents, and then so be it done. But with connection design, there, for the complicated connections, there's really no commercial programs available. Yeah, if you and that's don't, exactly what he meant. Yeah, and that's exactly what he meant. I mean, I, I can see that and I agree with Bill from that regard because there's not any commercial programs available. You really have to be able to draw a free body diagram and understand statics and basic principles of engineering. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then you're going to be in trouble because there's nothing out there that can help you. And for, with that regard, I do agree with Bill. Having said that, there are some tricky EOR stuff that you also have to take a step back and use basic principles. And if you're not able to do that, you're going to be in trouble there too. But yeah. it's imperative for connection design that you are able to do that Absolutely. for the more complicated connections. I would almost even say for the bracing connections too. Yeah. Bill and I also talked about how engineering, a lot of times everybody thinks it's cut and dried, it's a science. There's a right and wrong answer. But I think a lot of what we do is very much an art, and I think that that's even more so true when you're doing connection design. Yes, I would agree with that. I mean, you, economics comes in a big play in connection design. You, you just can't weld it up, put in a hundred pen welds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, economics, art, erectability, it all comes together in connection design. Well, and that leads me right into my next question. Um, looking at your long list of projects, I noticed that many of them involve value engineering services for the owner or the contractor. So how do you approach a job when you're value engineering, when that's your goal? 
Well, value engineering is usually driven by a fabricator preference. A lot of the times the fabricator suggests it. Other times we'll just notice it on the drawings when we're doing connection calculations. To really value an engineer something, you have to understand what the engineer's original intent was mm -hmm. and then know the cost implications for the fabricator. And we try to do that. And a lot of the times it's in the connections, especially if the connections were EOR mandated, then it's, it's a little bit easier because uh, we know the fabricator's preference or they'll be happy to tell us. And sometimes it can be in the framing. You can just change the framing around slightly or in trust layout, configurations. A lot of the times you can reconfigure a truss just to make it more fabricator friendly. Mm -hmm. An example of where we've done this recently, we did a, a project in the Hamptons that was a house in the was a house, although it was very questionable if we would call it a house. <laughs> more of a more of a resort. Definitely a structure. And in that project the engineer had big heavy, I believe W forties being broken up where they had smaller members being continuous through. So there was a lot of CJP welding across the member. And we did suggest that they revise the framing to make the heavy members continuous and the little infill, just have the little infill beams. In the end, uh, it was approved, and I think it did save the fabricator money on eliminating all the CJP welds. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a good value engineering exercise. As you went through school and then out into your first jobs, did you experience any different treatment because you're a woman in a field that's typically dominated by men, or do you think the industry has enough women in it now that it's not a consideration anymore? Well, I'm sure there were some advantages and disadvantages along the way. The advantages are more apparent. I got my first job out of high school at the Corps of Engineers because I was a woman. I had a fellowship to Berkeley because I was a woman, and my WBE certification certainly doesn't uh, hurt in these mm -hmm. hard economic times. Yeah. So there's definitely been some advantages. I, I, I'm sure there were some disadvantages along the way, but I think with anything in life, if you prove yourself, prove your commitment and your capabilities, all this extraneous stuff becomes irrelevant. Yes. No one really cares what your gender is, especially in our profession where it's all about uh, quality of work cost and schedule. Mm -hmm. If you can deliver on all those three, that's what matters. Yes. And I think that's where our profession is at this point in time. Yeah. And they just forget all about the rest. Yes. They forget about the rest. You went out on your own in 2003 with your own company, Drucker's Idell Structural Engineers in Naperville. Uh, how different is it being an owner and a partner from being on somebody else's staff? Well, I actually went out in 97, and that's when I started doing connections for my house for Strauss-Boyd's. Oh, okay. So that was when I first went out. And that was a, it was a good because that was a slow growth, you know, working from home. And the reason I joined up with my partner, Mary Lynn Zidell, who's an excellent engineer, was to lose the one-man shop label. And it worked like a charm, just like honestly overnight. <laughs> we were able to get bigger jobs across the country, and it worked extremely well. And I'd have to say the big difference is from doing all the work yourself to managing a crew of engineers. That would be the biggest difference. And that's for the better. Do you think it's more stressful? It can be. You have to worry about all those HR issues and hiring and benefits. And yeah, when you say it like that, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is more stressful when you, when you mention those things. <laughs> I didn't mean to bring it up if you yeah. weren't already thinking Yeah, I know that you mentioned it, right? <laughs> At AISC, we depend greatly on our volunteers that serve on the specification and task committees that are so generous with their time. You serve on the TC6 Committee on Connections. How long have you been on that committee? I think I joined that committee in 2004. I could be wrong on that, but that would be eight years. Eight and it, years. And it seems amazing that I've been on that committee for eight years. It really has. Time flies. And 
what a rewarding experience that has been to be on the TC6 committee. It is brings state of art and state of practice together, state of theory too. It's all there happening in that committee room. That's where you really understand how the specification works, what's the meaning behind the specification, and the history of the specification oh. and manual. I think that TC6 is one of the best, if not the best, AIC technical committee. <laughs> I might be a little bit partial, but we have a wealth of knowledge on that committee. I don't want to leave anyone out, but they're all great. Tom Murray's on there, Bill Thornton, Larry Muir, Larry Kleber, Ray Tide. If I left you out, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I respect everyone on that committee and there's a there's a full table of us that's for sure yeah. what motivated you to want to want to be on AISC committee well AISC asked me so that's all it took and I was there I was very uh, was very grateful to be on that committee I really am to this day it's, it's a it's a very rewarding experience yeah you've worked on many many projects what's your favorite project to date well my favorite projects are when there is synergy between the different team members and everybody is knowledgeable about their trade because what that leads to is a an economical and efficient structure that is well designed in the end, a good final product. That is the type of project that I like to work on the best. Now also I like it when they're challenging. Uh, every now and then it's nice to get a one, two, three easy project in the, in the in and out, but the fun ones are when it's challenging and you really have to think it through. I like those projects a lot too, more complicated projects. You lecture for, for AISC. Yes, I do. And uh, one of the topics you came up with and authored <laughs> is the do's and don'ts of steel construction which talks a lot about what goes on in the field and obviously what to do and what not to do. So what do you think is your most important do and your most important don't? <laughs> well, I think that's actually together. And unfortunately, it's in my last se section on what to do when a mistake happens. Now, I don't want people to think I'm an expert in making mistakes, but <laughs> <laughs> I have learned from some past experiences and I want to share that knowledge. Now in that, unfortunately it's the last one and usually by the end of the seminar it's five o'clock and people want to head out the door and I'm rushing to get through. Well now you can tell that, everybody. That part, right. So come see me in, <laughs> in Texas because I'll have... Oh yeah, you're presenting right. it in ASCC in, in April. That's right and yeah. I'll make sure to slow that last section down so everybody can hear it. But my, that, I like that part because you know the most important thing in my mind to do it right is to set a design criteria. I always say if you have a design criteria set in the front of a project, there's no excuses. Everybody knows what the project is to be designed to. But mm -hmm. also in there, it's like don't give up if you do make a mistake. You no, know, take a step back, take a breather, come back, relook at the problem, try to look at it from different angles. There's some good advice in that last section. That mm -hmm. is my favorite part of that seminar. Another don't would be uh, don't do calculations on the back of an envelope. I know we joke about that all the time on the industry that mm -hmm. you should be able to do the calcs on the back of an envelope, but it will get you in trouble every single time, especially in connection calculations where you need to, to submit calculations typically. If it doesn't look right, it probably isn't right. I mean, you can start with that. And if you ever have to go revisit your calculations later, you might go back and think, what was I thinking? Yeah, I mean, you won't it, have any idea. You won't have any idea. It, calculations should be neat and orderly. And QAQC is so important in this day and age that you have to make your calc so somebody can actually check them. Yes. So I would say that is another important don't. So just because you can do them on the back of an envelope doesn't mean you should. Exactly. <laughs> well put, Margaret. <laughs> well, and the other thing too is, I mean, you work on a project and maybe they don't build it for three years or something and you have to go back and look at stuff or while they're, you know, while they're building it and you can't, if you can't figure out what you did, how's anybody else supposed to be able to follow That's exactly right. what it's, you did? It's very important. So and yeah. hopefully someone's checking your work and they should be able to follow it very easily. I was always a big proponent of the, the neat calculations. <laughs> 
<laughs> ask anyone in this office, they will tell you that, that, that I definitely feel the same way. What do you think has been your greatest accomplishment to date? I think uh, my greatest accomplishment to date is, uh, well, the seminar is one, and I think that's because um, I like educating people. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot. I've been very fortunate to have a lot of client, fabricator, detailer clients that have taught me a lot about steel construction, and I like to share that knowledge. I've learned a lot from my fellow TC6 committee members, and I like to share that knowledge. And the do's and don'ts allows me to travel the country and share that knowledge. You still have a long career ahead of you. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in 10 to 20 years? Retired on an island or still designing connections? Or both, right? Or both. Yeah, or yeah. Both. you can design from an <laughs> island now with our technology. There's no reason yeah. you can't do both. That would be great to do both, but <laughs> I don't plan on, uh, yeah. I think I'm actually a lot younger than I look. <laughs> <laughs> so I probably will be around for some time here. You'll be around for a long time. Yeah, I don't plan on retiring anytime in the near future. I really enjoy what I'm doing and I plan on sticking around. So no, no islands in your future? Uh, well, that sounds good too, but not in the immediate future, no. Not, not in the 10, 20 year frame, no, I don't think so. I'll revisit you in, 20, in 10 years. I'll revisit yeah, you in maybe. 10 years and, and see if you've changed your mind. <laughs> um, what advice do you wish that you would have had when you were starting your career? Well, I can give you my preach, my latest preachy comment that I've been giving <laughs> to a lot of people, but I think it's pretty good. You know, as engineers, we're professionals, and then as professionals, it's very important to be continually learning and not be complacent in one's knowledge. As engineers, we often have this air about us that we're, we're knowledgeable and confident, but it's important to understand that there's always more to learn. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need to read articles, go to seminars, read books, and if possible, get involved in technical committees. It will really help you out and it will make your job more fun and interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I, I think, quite a balancing act. You need to be confident and knowledgeable, but still always that people know that there's always room to learn. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody can know everything. And that's part of being a professional. Besides being a successful engineer and a business owner, you're also a wife and a mother. So <laughs> how do you balance all of those roles? Ha ha, because that, not well. I'm probably oh. not the best person to ask that question. <laughs> because <laughs> I think every mother feels like that though. I think in my case the scale is a little bit out of kilter and sometimes it gets to be that way, but I'm very lucky to have a very understanding family. Mm -hmm. I think a better person to ask that question would be my husband. I really <laughs> admire him let's for... Let's get him on the phone. Yeah, let's get him on the phone <laughs> for his, his work-life balance. Uh, he's very good at that. And some of the things that he has done uh, for our family is uh, two things. One is encourage family dinners, sit-down dinners. Mm. When the kids were small, we always sat down at the table and had dinner together. It might be 9.30 at night, my kids would used to laugh that we eat dinner when most of their friends are going to bed, <laughs> but we ate together. And now that the, they're teenagers, it gets a little bit more crazy, everybody's on their different schedule, but on, we try to do it during the week, but for sure on the weekends. I've discovered that you put food in front of a teenager and they will come running <laughs> to you. So that works extremely well. I do highly recommend that. And another thing we've done as a family is take some very nice family vacations. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of reinstalls the bonding time. So that's been very, very nice too. And you have three children? I have three children. I have one son who's getting re ready to leave for college and uh, a set of twins that are still in high school. Uh, is your son gonna perhaps be an engineer? You know, I thought there was hope for him for a short time there. He did show some interest, and he also took drafting in high school and loved it. And he still might. You know, he's a little bit undecided, but I think right now he's he's going into a different path. But we'll see. You never know. Does he know where he's going to school? He is. He's going to Duke. Oh, okay. He's not following in your footsteps, but... No, he's not. I tried. <laughs>
<laughs> I still have hope, though. I have two more coming down. I was going to say, you have hope for the for the twins that yes. somebody might end up being an engineer. Yes, I do have hope. I have hope for my daughter. I think she would. I think she would be a great engineer. I really do. She's very good at math. Uh, she's very creative. I think How many more years do you have to work on her? I have two more years to work <laughs> two on more her. Years. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. If you weren't involved in the engineering industry, what other profession do you think you would have enjoyed? Well, I'm glad I chose this profession. I have no regrets. So from that respect, I don't know what else I would do. But one thing I, ha I will say that from lecturing for AISC, I have discovered how much I actually enjoy teaching. Teaching. From, from that experience. I didn't know how much I really enjoyed it. I don't know how good I am at it, but I really find it rewarding just to share knowledge. And when I get that look from someone like, oh, yeah, now I get I it. I get it. It's great. It's a great feeling. I, I, I think I might go into teaching. That might be an alternate path. Yeah. Something many, many years. Many, many years. <laughs> but you'll keep lecturing for us in the meantime. So, well, that would be so great. that'll be great for us, for AISC. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, I think that's, I think that's all my questions. It's, well, thank um, you. It's been a pleasure, Carol. Same here. Thank you very much. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.